Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and today I'm joined by Martha Coven, lecturer and John L. Weinberg, Goldman Sachs and Company, visiting professor, Princeton Spia. Martha has spent her career inside and outside of government working on domestic policy with a focus on poverty reduction and the federal budget. Before coming to Princeton, she served for six years in the Obama administration. She's also served in nonprofit roles at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and Consumers Union. Along with her teaching, she currently provides consulting services to foundations and nonprofits. At Princeton, Martha is known for the courses she teaches on writing, and I've even had the pleasure of guest speaking in a few. And I'm particularly excited about today's discussion because it's one that I also know well, effective writing. Martha just published a book called Writing on the Job with the Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Martha. Thanks for having me. So as I was preparing for this episode and just reading a bit more about your background, which I knew some of, it sort of led me to this first initial question. I'm curious what you think it makes for effective writing when it comes to policy specifically, because I think that's the audience we'll be reaching here. And then how can we take some of those principles and maybe apply them to other forms of writing? So I would say that there are two features to good policy writing. The first is that it has to be clear. And the second is that it has to be persuasive. And in some ways, these other kinds of writing, are that's true of them as well. Um, so writing clearly is important in policy work, and it can be challenging for policy professionals, I think in part because we are tempted to use all those big words and all the jargon that we've learned in school or at work. And ironically, those can obscure the meaning of what you're trying to get across rather than clarify it. So to make your policy writing clear, I think you just have to cut a lot of that junk out. And one of the pieces of advice I give people is to use what I call the neighbor test or a family member test. Imagine a neighbor or a family member who doesn't know anything about the specific topic you're writing about and write it so they could understand it. So the second quality of good policy writing is being persuasive, meaning making well-supported arguments to appeal to your reader. And that's true in other professional settings, too. In fact, before I wrote this book, the book I was teaching from is a business writing book written by two former advertising executives, which kind of makes sense because no matter what domain you're in, it's all about selling, right? In business, you're selling a good or service. In policy or politics, you're selling an idea, but the basic communications techniques are the same. Storytelling is a big part of it, using examples and anecdotes, although in policy writing, we have to be careful to ground those anecdotes in a more rigorous um, framework, data, other resources that we have, and make sure that we're not using an outlier anecdote or story. But stories can be really powerful no matter what kind of writing you're doing. You know, you were talking about how people in government or elsewhere might have a tendency to write long. Do you sort of recommend putting your ideas all down on paper and then trimming from there? I mean, we can get into the nuts and bolts, but how do how do people train themselves to write in that succinct manner that you noted? 
think it's different for everyone, but I would say that that's often how it works is just get it on paper. In fact, I sometimes tell people if you're having trouble writing it, just speak it. There, I've never found someone who couldn't tell you something about the thing they were supposed to be writing about. They just sometimes struggle to start putting it into the computer or what have you. And so just whatever way it can spill out of you, whether it spills out of you by talking into your phone or if it spills out of you by putting a bunch of things on the page, then you have something to work with. And I do think that's the strategy that works for most people. I agree with you. So this might sound like a rudimentary question, especially coming from another writer, but tell me why you think good writing is necessary, particularly today, whether it's in policymaking, academia, or even just sending a text message to your friend. Well, you know, the subtitle of this book is Best Practices for Communicating in the Digital Age. And I do think the fact that we're often reading now on smartphones or other small screens does make us have to write differently because so many people who are reading our writing are skimming them on those small screens. And we're all in email overload, incoming in overload. And you can't count on people to read very carefully start to finish what you have to say. So I think writing well is really important and getting to the point is important. One of the suggestions I make in the book is to use a strategy that the U.S. military calls bottom line up front, which is at the top of everything, whether it's an email or a report or any or a slide deck for that matter, give the takeaway message right up front and then unpack it, which is very different from fiction writing or other kinds of writing where you might slowly unwind a story. You don't have the luxury of doing that in the policy world, or I would say even the broader business world. But that's that's also how journalists sort of craft their yeah. stories too with the lead. Yeah. You know, you talked about the digital age and then also there was the pandemic, which really forced people into this more virtual world, whether they wanted to be there or not, if they could. In a recent op-ed, you actually argued that you felt the pandemic made people become more effective writers. I want to hear more about that argument, why you think that's so. And do you think there's any ways that the shift actually hindered collective writing or capabilities? So, you know, what's so funny about that op-ed, and you will appreciate this as somebody who reads op-eds and writes op-eds and um, so on, is that the title I submitted for that op-ed was The Pandemic Could Make Us Better Writers. And the publication where it landed, and as you know, the publications get to decide ultimately what headline to run things under, said it means we have become better writers. So I would say that the jury's out, but the hope is that the pandemic is making us better writers. And and that's because we've just we're writing more. And in general, when you do something more, you get better at it. Why are we writing more? And there are now academic studies showing that people are writing more in various kinds of jobs. It's because of the asynchronous issue, right? You don't always have your colleagues down the hall or available to jump into a Zoom meeting because people are dispersed more. They may not all be keeping the same working hours. So we're emailing more. We're using messaging platforms more. Um, and so from that point of view, just it's a skill that we're all building and, and we should be getting better as we go. But your question about challenges, I think, is is also well taken. Um, well, for one thing, if we're doing it too quickly, we may be doing it poorly. But I think another is that writing relies often on some connection between people. And when you don't actually know the person you're writing to, maybe you've never met, even though it's somebody within your organization or a client or a customer or somebody you're serving in a government agency, that you, if you're not careful, the warmth comes out of your 
communications and people can't tell what you mean. And I think you have to be just more intentional about putting those things back in and sounding like a human so that that connection is preserved, even though it's just happening through writing. That's very true. And it's it's a hard balance knowing if you write like you speak in an email or if you want to take a more formal yeah. approach or like you said, you, you need something and you have to kind of elevate that. Maybe we can get into more of these best practices for effective writing from the drawing from the book. What advice would you give to, say, a government staffer, a student or just someone who needs to communicate to the general public? So I would give maybe three pieces of advice. Um, Two of them we've talked about a little bit already. The first is this bottom line up front. Don't hide the point that you're communicating. State it right there so that people can understand what you have to say and then unpack it. The second thing I also alluded to, which is this idea of using your voice. So we talked about how that can get you started, right? If you're sort of stuck, you can talk and tape it and record it and you have something to work with. But it's also a great way to test whether what you've written is readable. You were talking about this kind of do you, how much is, should your writing be like the way you speak or how much should it be something different? I think writing should be very close to spoken language. Now, we speak and run on sentences. I'm sure I've been doing it in this interview. So you do have to be, you have to edit things accordingly. But I think the best way to test whether you've written something well is to read it aloud or use the feature in Microsoft Word now that will read it aloud for you. You'll be amazed at what you catch. Clumsy phrases, sentences that you get stuck on, words you would never say aloud, but you somehow have written on a page. And you can use that technique using your voice to clear that stuff out and make your writing more clear, especially when you're communicating with the public, but honestly, when you're communicating with anyone. And then the last piece of advice I'd give is to think hard about your audience. Again, if you're thinking about communicating with the general public, this is really important. So ask yourself, who's my reader? What do they already know? What context might they be missing to understand what I'm saying? And if you're doing anything that has an element of persuasion, which we were talking about earlier, what do they care about? You're trying to write something that resonates with them. So you should be making the kinds of arguments that work for them based on their values, their priorities. You're already persuaded. So putting the arguments that work for you doesn't work nearly as well as coming up with the arguments that will work best for your reader. So I'd say those three, bottom line up front, use your voice and consider your audience. Those are great suggestions, and they remind me of the workshop that we've done together on op-eds, which leads me to my next question about tools at a writer's disposal, especially students studying public policy. You know, where can they get these ideas out into the world? You know, how do you know what form your writing should take? Obviously, with persuasion, you know, the op-ed is a natural sort of thing, but how do you really know and how do you go about that? It's a great question. And you're right. It really does come from audience because writing, unless you're writing something that begins, dear diary, you are writing with the purpose of communicating, right? So you have to think about where are the people I'm trying to reach. And op-eds are a great tool. I think social media is another great tool, especially if you can write short or if you have visuals to share because social media is increasingly a visual medium. But Either way, I think the way to come at a question like that is to figure out where the audience you're trying to reach is reading now. What are they reading? And for example, if you're trying to place an op-ed, I think sometimes people just default to the big national newspapers. But it might be that if you're trying to reach 
For example, an audience of people who care about environmental policy or people who care about foreign policy, there are particular publications that they read, you know, newsletters, other kinds of trade publications, online publications, and getting your material in those is a much more effective way to connect with your audience than to put it in some kind of general interest type of publication. There's also and the other thing coming back to social media is there's always the option to self-publish. That's a great thing about the digital age. You can put something you write on Medium or even on a platform like LinkedIn and then use social media to push it out to the audiences you're trying to reach. So there are a lot of options for people who want to get their ideas out into the world. It's true. At the same time, you also have to be pretty careful, especially when it comes to a place like Twitter, where you could put something out. And I mean, if there's a mistake or an error or you know, something like that, it could go viral in a way you don't want to happen. So could you talk about some of the more common mistakes that writers make both in long form and in shorter forms? You're right that depending on how visible your writing is, you can attract critics in a way that can distract from what you're trying to accomplish, which is to get your ideas out there. I guess, I mean, there are a few mistakes that you see people make a lot that it'd be nice to avoid. And I see these even in student writing. Most of them, the grammatical mistakes fall in the category of commas and apostrophes. So commas, what I see a lot in writing is what you call a comma splice, which is two things that are two separate sentences that instead of being separated by a period or even a semicolon, which is permissible, or an and, people just write sentence, comma, sentence. I've seen like, that too. <laughs> right? How you say it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, what's funny is if you're on social media, that's probably okay because I think where, where that's happening is people are texting and writing social media a lot that way, and now it's creeping back into professional writing. So if you're writing on Twitter, probably no one's going to call you out for comma splicing. But if you bring those writing practices into your op-ed or what have you, you may have people poking at you. The apostrophes is another one. Some people just don't see these and some people do, but the people who do will hassle you or some some number of them will, particularly the possessives, right? Like an it's that with an either IT apostrophe S or ITS, some people swap words like that around um, when they shouldn't. And I realized at some point that I think there's a good reason why people get confused by this, not that it makes it easier. But that's because for most things, when you make something a possessive, you add an apostrophe S, right? This is Rose's interview, apostrophe S. But when it comes to those little words, those little pronouns, it's the opposite. It's IT apostrophe S is not the possessive. The possessive doesn't have an apostrophe. Anyway, it sounds silly, but I see those things being called out online a lot because they're easy errors for the people who notice these things to spot. Definitely. That encourages us all to take a grammar course again. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about my own writing throughout the pandemic and in the recent years. And I have actually found that I have a lot of trouble slowing down, which leads me to make more errors than I used to make. And I think it's the result of, you know, distraction and comp- competing projects. I'm curious, what rituals or routines do you have so that you can get into a good space for effective writing? And how can people just generally enhance their own writing? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And there's a short chapter at the beginning of my little book called Getting Started that's all about different strategies people use and different ones will work for different people. One of them is to avoid distractions, to basically force yourself, shut off your notifications on your phone, on your email, on your social media, and put yourself in an environment where you can immerse yourself in what you're writing. And sometimes 
that sounds scary to people. And so I always say, just do it for 20 minutes, set a timer on your phone and just see what happens if you do that for 20 minutes. Are you able to get going? So that's one thing. Yeah. Clear the noise, avoid the distractions, settle into the space, slow down, as you said. Another thing is, this is so basic, but start early. It's so much easier to, to if you can write something and then step away from it and come back, you'll have a much easier time wrapping it up, polishing it than if it's all done in haste and you have to click send. I do that even for emails. If I'm sending a note to someone that feels important in any way, I draft it and I come back to it five minutes later and read it again. And often I find something that I didn't notice the first time. So avoiding distractions, starting early. A third tactic that I do, and not everyone loves this, but I find that it really helps, is preparing some kind of outline. I call it a bullet outline, like just the three points I want to get across in this document, whatever I'm writing. And if you write those first, they're almost like talking points, which I argue in the book is one of the most versatile forms of writing. If you can write your three talking points, the three things you want to get across, then you can write, you can fill it out and unpack it. But the thinking part is done in preparing that little outline. And if they don't come to you when you're staring at your screen, I often find if I just get up from my desk and walk down the hall or walk around the block, they start to just come into your head. And then you can get back to your desk and say, oh, yeah, these are the two points I'm trying to make. And then you're writing. That's so true, because once you have the kind of points you want to make, you can always supplement with the facts and figures to back up those ideas. And then you're, you know, beginning and ending, you can sort of shape around what's going on currently or if we're talking, I'm kind of thinking op-ed style. So that's really great. You know, I'm curious as we sit here, you know, you're kind of renowned for your courses at Princeton. I know, you know, students really want to take them. How did you kind of go down this path of building this niche in writing particularly? And then what led you to write this book now? So I started teaching at Princeton seven years ago. Now that's partly how these courses have built a reputation as I've been teaching them for a (laughs) while. And when I started teaching writing, I looked around for a book that I wanted to give my students, and I couldn't quite find what I wanted. I mentioned earlier, I I used a book that some advertising executives had written that's still great. It's called Writing That Works, but Mm. it's more than 20 years old now, and we are now in a digital age, and the way that we communicate has changed. At some point, I thought, well, if the book I want to assign doesn't exist, maybe I should write it, and, and then it will be useful to not just my students, but to other professionals who are similarly looking for a resource like this. You know, it's funny you say that because I interviewed Sahar Aziz, who's also a visiting professor, and she said the exact same thing about her book. She said, no one else had written it. So I did. And I love that answer. If you're not able to assign it because it doesn't exist, why not write it yourself? Martha, we're just about out of time. But is there anything else you want to say about the book, about the process of writing a book, which I'm sure gave you a lot of practice with effective writing? Any final thoughts? So I guess I would say two things. And they're both in the vein of a pitch for good writing. And all of us, I mean, it's a lifelong journey, right? None of us are perfect writers. None of us ever will be. We're all in this journey. But in pushing yourself along this journey, I would make two two arguments for why people should do that. One is just purely self-interested. If you are a better writer, you people will like working with you more. Your emails will be more readable. Your boss won't need to rewrite your report late at night. You'll have more time to do other things. You'll just be you'll go further in your career if you're if you're a strong writer. So working on that 
has value just for yourself, again, in a self-interested way. To get a little lofty, I guess I would say I think there's also a value to society in better communication and good writing is a big part of that. You know, I work in the world of public policy, as, as many folks at our organization do. And I do think good writing can sometimes help bridge divides because it allows us to understand each other's points of view better. Certainly, if government agencies write better and communicate better with the people they represent, people feel better about their government and less frustrated with it. So I'm not naive about the era of polarization that we're in, but I do still think that good writing can be good for democracy. And that's an important reason to tackle it. I think that's a great place to end today. Writing on the job, best practices for communicating in the digital age is available now through Princeton University Press and wherever else you find books. Martha, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We want to thank our listeners for tuning into EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. The show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber. We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.